Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 135, which along with Psalm 134 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, October the 6th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We are continuing our look at the prophecy of Micah today um, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. We're in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, and in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 24, verses 1 to 23. So remember that that Micah has brought a charge against the leaders of the people yesterday. He brought this charge against them and said, you're stealing from my people. You're not doing justice. You're doing injustice. And there's judgment coming upon you. And you leaders in the future, you're going to lack anyone to make a claim for any land, not just the land you've stolen from these other people, but also for the land that you would have had ancestrally because you will have no progeny. And then goes on to say, there will be one who gathers the remnant and who goes before them, and that's the Messiah. So now we're speaking about Jerusalem. The first chapter was all about Samaria, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom. Now we're talking about the southern kingdom. Here, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? That's, That's a basic qualification of a leader is to know justice. And so isn't it supposed to be that way with you? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Now, is he speaking metaphorically here? Yes, of course he's speaking metaphorically. (laughs) But what they're doing is is that, that they are ruining, destroying the people because of their own greed, their own avarice. They want more and more and more, and they're taking it from God's people. It's, it, there's nothing just about them at all. The, the leaders are supposed to lead God's people in justice, and, and they're leading with injustice. So it, it's a totally mixed up world. The leaders, it's, you know, you could you see this. I saw it in Rwanda, frankly, and there's two sides of that story, right? So the first side of that story gets you up until 1964. So what happens is the Belgians come in. Nobody, no white man that we know of had ever been into Rwanda until the late 19th century. So the 1890s um, is the first time anybody, a white man, goes into Rwanda that we know of that documented it. Who documented it? So then the Belgians end up with it because it was first German. A man named Johann Speke was the first guy there, first white guy there. And so the Germans kind of claimed it. Well, after World War I, the, it, it was taken away from the Germans and the Belgians oversaw it for a season of time. And so what the Belgians did was they determined, well, there, there, there's, there appears to be several, three groups of people here, and they have certain kinds of physical characteristics. But that's not, I mean, the Twa are, are the dwarves, essentially. They're midgets, um, whatever you call them. I don't know what the right term is now. I didn't mean anybody offense. Th- then you have the Hutu and the Tutsi. Those are the primary groups. Those are 99% of the population. So what they observed was Tutsi tended to look like a certain way, and Hutu tended to look a certain way. Well, the the real distinction between Hutu and Tutsi was not physical. It was wealth. If you owned more than 10 cattle, you were a Tutsi. If you owned fewer than 10 cattle, you were a Hutu. Well, over time, 
wealthy people tend to want to make matches with other wealthy people. And so there's this kind of inbreeding that happens on both sides because you're not going to let your daughter marry a poor guy. So you're, you're going to have him marry another wealthy guy. Well, the gene pool is pretty small, so it, it continues along that way. So they tend to have same physical characteristics, but that's not the demarcation between Hutu and Tutsi. It, it had everything in the world to do with wealth. So then the, the Belgians said, this is too complicated. So today we're going to set in place, we got these two tribes. If you're a Hutu today, you're a Hutu forever. It doesn't matter how wealthy you become. You're a Tutsi today, you're a Tutsi forever. It doesn't mean how, matter how poor you become. So they set that up, and then they say, okay, the Tutsi, they come up with them with this mythology. They said Tutsi were born to rule, so we're going to give them all the leadership positions. We're going to give them all the authority. We're going to give them all the education access. The Tutsi, or the Hutu, well, you guys fend for yourself. So you got 14% of the population ruling permanently. The French come in, and in the 60s, in the early 60s, they decided, you know, this is wrong. What we need is uh, direct democracy. And so they put everything up for vote. Well, who do you think is going to win? you got 14%, 85%, 1%. Who's now going to control everything? Well, the 85%, obviously, because they have a lot of grievances <laughs> that have built up over the last 45 years. So that they then take control of all the levers of government because, well, they, they're the only people who can elect anybody. And they begin to use those levers of government against the Tutsi in the same way that the Tutsi had used it against them. So there's a lot of grievance going on, but then this thing happens called genocide. So this genocide starts in the late 60s, and, and there's a great exodus of Tutsis out of Rwanda and, and into the surrounding countries. And then it, it reaches its zenith in 1994. And, and the problem was is that they had, they had flayed the flesh of these people metaphorically by taking all their wealth and everything else, every access to education and everything else. And so they, they had flayed the flesh of the people that leaders had, and now they decided to do it not just metaphorically, but truly. And so that's what's happening in this, this passage here that we read. And that is, is that the levers of power are used against the powerless. So that's what he's accusing them of. They will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide their face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who led my people astray who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him, who puts nothing into their mouths. In other words, they're prophets for hire. And as long as they're fat and happy, they'll prophesy whatever they need to prophesy to make themselves fat and happy. And when they don't, when they're not fat and happy, then, then they will rail against the Lord. Therefore, it should be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. In other words, you, you, there's going to be a dearth of prophecy. There'll be no more prophecy in the land because you got all these liars out there. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers will be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. When all this judgment comes, you guys are going to look like idiots. You're going to see that you're liars, and that's it. You're prophesying from your flesh. They shall all cover their lips, for there's no answer from God. In other words, they put their hand over their mouths because they know they can't speak anymore, because they've been proven to be wrong. But as for me... Michael says, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So what's his job? To call them to repent. So it, it, that's, that's the whole point of declaring the sin, is I want you to repent. He doesn't want judgment to come. God doesn't want to bring judgment down on the people. He w wants them to turn to him and repent of their sins. That's the purpose of declaring sin. We have utterly and completely forgotten that in our day. 
No, 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 no. We don't want to call. We don't want to say that's sin. That, which is the lying prophet. We don't want to say that's a sin. Well, God called it a sin. I don't have the power to call it something else. I have the ability to, but it's a lie. So that's the thing that we have to do. We have to make sure that we love the people we're proclaiming the word to, and, and whose sins are being exposed. We have to love them enough to expose them, so that they can repent. And they can do exactly what God wants them to do. <clears throat> so don't don't be the one who says nope, that's not sin, when God said it is. In the in the um, gospel today, Jesus is going to reveal something about sin. He's going to reveal something about God's attitude towards sin and God's attitude toward repentance. So what you get is one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. In other words, he's eating there. Now, when you did this, if you had an important personage with you, you, you left the windows and doors open in the house because you wanted people to know that you had an important guest. And, and they, they were not there to eat, but they could listen. They could listen to the conversation. And, and it, it magnified you to have that person there. So a woman of the city who was a sinner, we don't know her name, and we assume she's a prostitute, by the way. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And these alabaster flasks of ointments were what prostitutes would wear to make themselves smell good and appeal to, to men. And so here she takes this thing, which is her asset um, that, that attracts, at least. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, which would be scandalous that she would take down the hair of her head and wipe his feet with them is, is essentially, um, you would only let down your hair like that in front of another of a man who was your husband. And so it's scandalous that what she's doing here uh, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. I mean, we talked about the humility of the centurion. There's nothing more humble than what this woman's doing. She is washing his feet with the only thing she has to it. Well, not the only thing, but, but the main thing that she has to make a living, frankly. She is in that place. And so she is leaving her past behind, casting her lot completely with Jesus and, and, and throwing herself at his mercy for one reason. She loves him and she believes that he is Messiah. And, and she is betting everything, literally. On him and, and her humility and kissing his feet, wiping his um, uh, feet with her tears and her hair and all that. This is the, the greatest act of humility that you're ever going to see. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what, who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Well, that, it's pretty obvious, frankly. <laughs> but it, in other words, what he's saying is, huh, I guess he's not who other people think he is because he isn't much of a prophet if he can't even figure this out. And Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, yeah, say it, teacher. I mean, it's teacher, so he's giving him a you know, pretty high um, appellation there. And so he, Jesus says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50, so one owed 10 times as much. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Makes sense. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Good work, man. You figured it out. I gave you the easiest possible quiz, and you passed. <clears throat> then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. 
but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the first time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, here's the thing about this, right? I mean, what he's saying is is that you have disrespected me from the moment I walked in the door. You have disrespected me, and this woman has greatly respected me. But why is that such a big deal? Well, it's a huge deal, an enormous deal. And, And you know why, if you've been listening to me very long. The number one cardinal virtue in Judaism is hospitality hospitality, and it's based in the way that Abraham greets the three men in Genesis 18 who come to him, and, and he says, hey, let me make you something to eat, I, I, just a little snack. And then he deputizes everybody in the household to do everything possible to provide lavish hospitality for this man. And one of the things then that's condemned in the next scene as they go to Sodom and Gomorrah is inhospitality to the men once they come into Sodom. It's the opposite of hospitality. And, and so that's the greatest thing. The thing that's missing for most Christians in chapter 18 is God has come to see Abraham, is what it says, and then the three men come. And he leaves God to go give hospitality to them. So from that, they derive a principle that, that even if God's in the house, your hospitality to other people, your, your responsibility to provide hospitality to strangers exceeds staying there with God. Now, it's interesting that, that Jesus does exactly kind of the opposite thing with Mary and Martha, right? When Mary is, or Martha's providing all the hospitality, Mary's sitting there at his feet. He says, no, 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 she's chosen the better part. But here, what he's saying is, is that, that, you know, on your own terms, you've sinned greatly against me while she's done exactly the opposite of sin. She has done so lavish hospitality that she should be commended and you should be condemned under the law. You've made light of your own sin, and it's egregious what you've done in your failure to provide basic hospitality that should be provided to any guest. Yes, you've treated me like some sort of a celebrity as far as that's this is concerned by allowing her to be here. But the other side of that is you've treated me like dirt under your feet because you haven't provided this hospitality to me. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. In other words, your sins, I just laid them before you. Her sins are forgiven. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Notice he didn't look at Simon and say, yours are too, because she atoned for hers. She confessed them in the way that she acted towards Jesus, and so her sins are forgiven because she loved the Son. She recognized him, she had faith in him, and she loved him. And it was an active form of love. Because of her actions, she receives forgiveness. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Well, we've seen this already. We saw that with the paralytic that's brought down and laid before him through the tiles at Capernaum. Because Jesus forgave him and then healed him. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Can you imagine hearing from the lips of Jesus, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In the words of Carl, the groundskeeper from Caddyshack. So I got that going for me. It's it's a powerful, powerful thing. But you can hear that from Jesus. You can hear him say that. Not from his lips necessarily, but know that those words are for you. 
to the extent that you love him and extend yourself on his behalf. In the Acts passage today, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman to Felix. Remember, I told you all about Felix yesterday. If you didn't listen to yesterday, go back and listen to like the last four or five minutes of it. and You'll hear everything you need to know about Felix. So and a spokesman came with Annas and the, the elders, uh, uh, Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. So you got the lawyer now making his prosecuting argument here. Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Well, one of the things I told you yesterday <laughs> was is that he had Jonathan, the previous high priest, put to death. So that's who this Felix is. He gets recalled from this post because they hated him so much, and he was so crooked and corrupt. But, hey, you still start with all the flattery in the world. We enjoy peace because of you. Because of your foresight, most excellent, Felix. Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. Not like Jonathan. He got put to death. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. I, I, I'm not going to take up much of your time here. Uh, just It's a very simple thing. We have found this man a plague. <laughs> One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Well, how did he uh, stir up riots? He preached the gospel. And then they began to accuse him of things. He stirred up riots because they rejected what he had to say. He didn't stir up riots. He, he didn't go in and stir up anything. He just preached the gospel. And they rejected the gospel, and they did it in such a way that it caused a riot. Whether it was in Ephesus, where the silversmiths came against him, or whether it was in, um, not Berea, but the place before that, where they, they came against Paul. He didn't do anything. He just proclaimed the gospel. So he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, which is a lie. But we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. He'll tell you in his own words. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So I recognize the position you have. And because I recognize the position, in the same way he didn't recognize the high priest the day before, remember? So now he says, I recognize that you're the judge over this nation. I cheerfully make my defense because you have the authority to be a judge. That's the reason that I'm going to make a defense. You can verify. And, and so, in other words, because you've been here many years, also, you know some stuff. You, you can't possibly be ignorant of all that, that we're going to talk about here. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. This didn't happen long ago. There's witnesses there. You can go find this out. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. I didn't do anything. He took these guys in who had completed their vows. He paid for that and did everything that was necessary. That's all he did. And then they accused him of bringing Greeks, uncircumcised Greeks, into the temple precincts. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the, by the law and written in the prophets. I haven't overthrown Judaism. This is not something that's in opposition to Judaism at all. I affirm all of that. 
having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there'll be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation, Israel, and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. I was just there bringing my offerings. That's all I was doing. And I was purified. I was fit to be in the temple. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation since they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing I cried out while standing among them. It's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. So these Jews from Asia, they're the ones who said, Paul brought these Greeks in there because they were telling about, oh, he stirred up trouble everywhere he went. And so they stirred these people up. But if they have an accusation against me out there from the hinterlands, they should be here today to make that accusation. But they're not. So, look, all I did was to say this is about the resurrection of the dead. That's what stirred them up. And what he means by that is, see, that got the Sadducees all stirred up, and it got the Pharisees all stirred up in defense. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. And then for whatever reason, Lysias never comes down. We have no earthly idea why he doesn't. We think it's because he's waiting on a bribe because... Luke's going to tell us he was waiting on a bribe. But, but Lysias never seems to come down to, to further this case in any way. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So, so Paul had restricted freedom, let's say. He was going to have some liberty. His friends could come see him. They could provide for him. He wasn't to be kept in solitary confinement, blah, blah, blah. So what, what, all this, again, comes down to authority. Does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? Yes, he does. Why? Because the, he is the incarnate Son of God. He and the Father are one. So he can forgive sins. And, and you, it's harder to see that during his life than it is after his resurrection. But he has the authority to do these things. And the woman recognized it, but the Pharisee didn't. In the Micah passage, there's abuse of authority, but they find out ultimately who the authority is. We're all under authority, we're under the authority of God, the one in whose image we're created. And here, Paul recognizes the authority of Felix. He makes no appeal <laughs> to his vanity, only to his authority. The, the Jews recognize that he has authority, but they really just make appeal to vanity. Their, their case is not based in his authority, it's based in his vanity that they appeal to. Ultimately, what we have to decide for ourselves, and we have to decide it again every single day, are we going to fear man or are we going to fear God? What authority do we respect the most? And the way that we live our lives says a lot about how we answer that question.